Hello, boys and girls. It's your host, Tim K, here to talk to you about an awesome event, VetFest, being put on by OP Veteran, November 2nd, 2019. Mark your calendars. 12 to 5 p.m., come on out to Austin for a day of fellowship with the veteran community where you can learn about finding the services you need, the volunteer opportunities you're looking for, and the veteran-owned products that you want. OP Veteran headed up by Denny Katona, uh, an Army veteran brother who has been on the podcast. Actually, you will hear him in a future episode. Uh, they provide veteran community stewardship by fostering engagement of veterans into the nonprofit community at large. Now, this is achieved through mentorship, awareness campaigns, and fellowship activities, which provides a growing support system for all veterans. Guys, it's important. We need community. We need camaraderie. OP Veteran is helping facilitate that. So check out opveteran.org right now. Our first guest could easily take the title for the most interesting man alive. I mean, I don't think that guy holds a candle to this guy. But Paul DeGelder is a veteran of the Australian Army, where he served as a paratrooper. Then, of course, looked for more of a challenge and joined the Naval Clearance Divers. During that time, unfortunately, though, Paul suffered an attack from a nine-foot bull shark in the Sydney Bay, where he lost two limbs. Although I, I think most would probably never recover from that incident. I think that's fair to say. Uh, Paul has used that moment to blaze trails and inspire others while doing so. He's hosted a multitude of Shark Week documentaries on Discovery Channel. He's spoken to business leaders in multi-million dollar corporations. Uh, he's even taught actor Will Smith and UFC Hall of Famer Ronda Rousey how to interact with sharks. That's pretty cool. And he's become an advocate for the very animal that almost killed him. I could talk about half a billion other things when it comes to Paul, but let's go ahead and let him speak for himself. Here he is, the one and only Paul DeGelder. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay, and I'm your host. And today we've got a very special guest. Well, every day is a special guest, uh, because everyone is unique, obviously, in this project uh, that we've covered. But one of the big goals of this work uh, was to turn it into a global essay. I wanted to get out and get some of the British perspectives, the Australian perspective, and because it's important to me. I, I don't think that those guys get enough credit. I don't think their allies get enough credit um, in the modern conflicts, and it's very important for me personally. Since, a very, since I was a very young age, I used to read a lot heavily on some of the British and Australian uh, fighters, so I'm very proud of this next guy, Abel Seaman Paul de Gelder. And we've got him right here, live from Los Angeles. From my lounge room. From his lounge room. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Paul, uh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Great buddy. to have you. Yeah, and nice thanks on. for coming nice on. Nice to man. see you again. It's been ages. Dude, it's been forever, hasn't it? How many? Two, three years? Something like that. I feel like we would always see each other. It's kind of like the, the social media world has just shrunken everything down. And yeah. you don't stay in touch with your friends as much because you feel like you're 
a part of their lives anyway. And it's, it's kind of sad that it detracts from actual the physical contact of catching up with friends sometimes. Yeah, it's very interesting. Actually, I got my master's in social media and emerging media. And it's funny the disconnect that that kind of creates. It creates a connect because you're able to connect, you know, talk Absolutely. to people that you normally can't. Uh, but also there's a disconnect because like you said, it's like those friendships, you just kind of depend on it being there. You're like, yeah. Oh yeah, it's there. I know them. And then yeah. it's like, before you know, it, you haven't talked for like two or three yeah. years. But then veterans, especially a kind of, um, that's how we maintain a lot of our friendships anyway. Right. Um, we did that before there was even social media in existence, you know, because you're getting posted around so much and you're traveling so much and you might not see a mate for a couple of years and then all of a sudden you're on the on the same exercise or whatever you bump into each other in some country and all of a sudden it's boom it's on it's like you were never apart so we're especially used to that and it's okay but um you know it still does detract from uh special friendships you make along the way and i think you know i i especially i need to make more of an effort sometimes yeah me too though it gets very easy too especially in this space where i'm constantly covering different guys and it's like, you know, going back and maintaining that friendship is kind of tough. You know, going back, you really got to make a concerted effort uh, to get back there. So, Paul, we want to get into a lot of stuff with you. Obviously, the point of this podcast is kind of an extension of what I'm doing with the project, you know, the black and white photos and all that. I want people to be able to hear our voices. I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also going to have caregivers on, you know, gold star wives, people who have lost people in combat, people who have taken care of, people who have come back from injuries. And um, also get some, you know, civilians on who are important to the community. So that's going to be the goal. But I really wanted to have you on because you have had some great success after service, but it didn't come so easy, did it? Literally cost me an arm and a leg. (laughs) (laughs) Line of the century. Can we put that on a t-shirt, by the way? (laughs) I don't whip that one out too often because (laughs) it's so cheesy. But it has been used before, right? Yeah. 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 Once or seriously, only once or twice. So like I don't try to stick away from the the cheesy ones. Uh, but it's, it just rolls off the tongue occasionally. Yeah, yeah. People just go, what? <laughs> I know. They don't know whether to laugh yeah. either. Luckily, I'm a veteran, so I laugh right away. Uh, I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's funny. Um, Paul, so um, can you t- can you take us back to, you know, growing up, where you grew up and kind of where you've come, you know, how you've come to where you're at now? Kind of what led you into the military? I obviously want to get into that Dude, a little bit. I didn't even know this. Uh, until I joined, but actually both of my grandparents on both sides of the family were military. Um, Mum's parents were from the UK. Um, my grandpa jumped into Normandy. Um, oh, wow. With, uh, with uh, any aircraft. Mum's um, mum was in the Air Force. Dad's mum was in the Air Force. Um, Dad's dad wasn't. He was a, a merchant Navy sailor, um, and his ship got sunk in the South Pacific. Uh, by a wow. Japanese raider, and they got, he got picked up by an American ship. And so he served a, a bunch of time as a cook on an American ship and ended up getting an American medal. So wow. technically not military, but served with military. And then my uncle went to Vietnam. Uh, dad was a cop. Um, both my younger brothers joined the army before me, and then I joined, and then my baby sister joined. Um, and she's my baby sister's my hero. Uh, you know, She went to Iraq. She went to Afghanistan. She was one of the first female... Um, Australian military personnel to go outside the wire on fighting patrols as an army medic, you know, patching up the boys when they were getting blown up, like legit badass. Wow. Uh, and now she's back in Sydney. She's worked, she's transferred over from um, enlisted medic to officer nurse and she's working out of Sydney, just had her first baby. Wow. So, 
Yeah, the family's doing well. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been, you know, like I said, a couple of years since we've talked, so I didn't, I don't even think I knew that. Yeah, it's been, been some, some crazy stuff happening in the last couple of years as far as work goes. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you know, when you first joined, what that process was like. Was it a culture shock? Were you, were you ready for it? Did you Dude, feel? I was so not ready for it. <laughs> I was the worst, the worst. I was like probably a lot of like enlisted soldiers that get in just looking for more meaning and value and purpose out of life because I was just failing at <laughs> I was just <laughs> literally failing as a human being. Um, so we moved around a bit when I was a kid. Um, I was born in Melbourne, uh, about an hour and a half south of Melbourne in a little town called Mornington Peninsula. And dad got posted to the capital of Australia as um, a cop. He was uh, Australian Bureau of Criminal Intelligence. So we moved to Canberra when I was 10. And um, then I hit, uh, I was all of us were competitive state swimmers and stuff like that. And I ended up just getting really sick of it and sick of discipline at the all boys Catholic school and sick of church and sick of discipline at home. And I ended up um, just following some pretty dark paths. I ended up self-harming for a while. I was slashing my arms up, um, hit it really well. No one even knew. Um, but then that transferred, I found another outlet through kickboxing Um and that was great because I got bullied a lot as a kid because I was really small and short and big ears and freckles and just a very easy target. And so I caught the brunt. Like even I didn't even like playing football because my own teammates would pick on me. Yeah. And so that kind of felt like a bag of dicks. And <laughs> so I started doing kickboxing and I learned how to beat the shit out of people. And so I did. <laughs> but, you know, some of my friends from kickboxing, we'd... we'd we were like 16, 17, and we'd get drunk. We'd pick up goon bags. I don't know if you guys know what that is. No, are. what is a goon, goon bag? Goon bag is a box of wine. Oh, okay. You know, it has the bag inside the, oh, the box. Okay. So we, you know, we're all broke. So we'd either chip in two bucks each or one of us would um, do a hit and run and sort of <laughs> go into the liquor store and grab the box of wine and run. And then we'd all get trashed. <laughs> and throw most of it up and then go fighting uh, and honestly I probably got beat up more than I actually beat anyone up but <laughs> it, that, that followed on with drugs and smoking and uh, marijuana like, like ecstasy and speed and coke and I was mixing with some pretty bad crowds and got kicked out of home flunked high school ended up working behind a bar for some uh, motorcycle gangs um, and then just got one day got jumped by 20 dudes and I was just like fuck this I can't I cannot exist in this place anymore so i left wow moved to uh, i jumped into a car had no license drove 12 hours north to brisbane and started working behind a bar in a strip club and making rap music <laughs> as as you do <laughs> i mean that's pretty normal <laughs> yeah i know right it was a solid transition from can you tell a different story because every veteran has told this one <laughs> yeah. um open for snoop dogg in 1998 Jeez. Um, that always blows me away, by the way, when yeah, you tell me that. Yeah. That was, yeah, Just imagining that, it's hilarious. Um, and thought I'd made it. You know, I thought, this was this was it. I'm going to be a rapper. <laughs> Not a lot of money in white rappers in Brisbane in 1998, though. <laughs> Ended up living in a house with no electricity, showering at the local pool because we had no water, eating noodles on toast like all poor people do uh, in, the, in the first world countries. And um, just, I was back to like zero. Yeah. Just thinking I've changed everything. I left home. Seems I brought the problem with me, which was me, <laughs> and um, decided to look at other options, drastic options, like my brothers joining the army. Oh, yeah. They said, just don't, whatever you do, don't join infantry. You won't make it. It's too hard. So 
I joined infantry. Of course. And <laughs> can't have my baby brothers telling me what to do. <laughs> yeah, I can't have that. Yeah, so that, you know, I'd, I'd just gone fighting against discipline so much my whole life to being surrounded by the most disciplined, crazy people on the planet. And it was really quite a tough adjustment. And I wanted to do what I always did. I wanted to run away. I wanted to fight against it. But I couldn't because I, I knew the life that I would be going back to. And so I really had to look internally and work out what the problems were. And the problem wasn't my environment. It was my perception and my actions. And so those were the things that I decided to change. And I focused on that, you know, when you go to boot camp, there is a lot of stuff that no one likes. Oh, yeah. But there's also some cool stuff. Yeah. Like learning to shoot machine guns and rifles and throw grenades and um, finally not having the option of smoking a pack a day of cigarettes and puffing on bongs. Uh, my fitness came back, the swimming fitness. Mm. And so I started smashing everyone in my platoon and I ended up getting the, the PT award at the end of basic training. So that kind of give me, gave me a little, a little bit more value and I thrived off that, to be honest. Like that, that uniform and that that value and that purpose, um, and goals. You know, try just trying to get through basic training, just trying to get through infantry school, um, making mates along the way. That that really changed a lot for me. I was still drinking a lot, like yeah. everyone probably does. Then um, I thought you quit that when you joined the military. Drinking? No, <laughs> I am Australian. <laughs> Of course. No, we don't quit it over here either, yeah. man. So that was really tough. But that was the funny thing that I learned along the way was the things that are the toughest usually have the greatest outcomes. Yeah. And it honestly changed my world. I'll, 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 there was a lot of shit, that bad stuff that happened in the army, but I'll always be grateful to the fact that they gave me a sense of value and purpose. They they taught me how to be a real man, a valuable member of society, and they let me serve my country and do something special. So I'll always be grateful for that. That's awesome. So from there, obviously, you know, you had joined the United, the not the United States Army because that's our <laughs> army, um, the Australian military, and you were a paratrooper, right? Yeah. Okay. What what about that life of a paratrooper did you like and and not like at the same time? What what was you Love know. jumping out of planes. Did you? Yeah. <sighs> Loved yeah. it. Nighttime, CE, packs, weapons, ammo into a drop zone I'd never seen before. Dude, a guy that likes to swim with sharks, I would have no idea that you would like to drop out of planes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got lucky though. I never got injured. And, you yeah. know, we did exercises with um, with the US um, guys as well, like oh, tandem, cool. tandem thrust up around Queensland. Uh, where we jumped into drop zones where the whole DZ, like the whole battalion jumped in and the drop zone would be lit up with red silos, wow. glow sticks. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. They've lit up the DZ for us so we can see a bit better. My was like, no, 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 they're red silos. That means they're injured people. And I was like, no, <laughs> a lot of red silos. I was like, this is going to suck. But wow. I never got an injury. So I loved every, every jump. Very fortunate. Um, yeah, I just closed. I assumed the position and closed my eyes. That's, that is the secret to landing <laughs> <laughs> under the, the, what do they call it? The T10D-B. Yeah. Probably progressed from that parachute now. But right. you just assume the position. Feet and knees together, toes up, head down, chin on chest, arms protecting your face. Assume the position, close your eyes and relax. Mm. that's how you survive and every landing was good for yeah you. absolutely um and so i loved loved jumping i loved hanging out with the guys um I, lo I loved feeling like a legit badass i loved carrying i was 
not the biggest guy in my platoon, but I, I got to carry the machine gun. I got to carry all that ammo. I felt like a badass when I was doing that for about one hour. And then the rest of the hours humping that bloody thing, I did not feel much of a badass. <laughs> but uh, it was just, I don't know, it, it was the, the purpose yeah. The wearing the uniform and then you were training for a reason and then the best part about it was getting to do that in um in east timor with the united nations and doing what we were trying to do <clears throat> not specifically hunting you know seek out and close with the enemy kill and destroy him but um we were peacekeeping we were protecting people that couldn't protect themselves we were standing up for those people that didn't have a voice and so that there was a lot of fulfillment in that and um when I came home from that, I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I need to do that again. Like that, that was amazing. Awesome. <coughs> Excuse me. What do you think about that um, time in Timor? What, what do you think about that? Did that close your focus in on what you were doing and really help your career? Do you feel like, do you feel like you learned a lot about yourself in that time over there? Yeah, it didn't, it didn't really help me in my career. I, I did love it that, you know, it was kind of like finally, getting to play that grand final that you've always been training for. Right. Uh, what it did was it gave me an appreciation for life. And it, so it taught me, it gave me an appreciation for life, for all of the things that we often take for granted in our beautiful, well-established, very luxurious countries. We have toilets, we have running water, we have showers, we have clean water to drink, we have food, we have electricity, we have television, we have like anything we want is right there, the tip of our fingers. Even if we're poor, we still have clean drinking water, um, unless you live in Michigan, obviously. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. yeah. It's bad out Those there, yeah. Poor bastards. Yeah. But um, so that changed them. It made me happier as a person right. because I had appreciation for everything that I had, which at that point wasn't really much, but I realized I didn't need that much. You know, um, yeah. It's funny that the more things you gather, the more anchored you feel. When, when I was bouncing back and forward from Australia to America, trying to get more work out here, and I had nothing. I had a car in Sydney and a car here in LA, and everything had to fit in that car. And I felt so much freedom. Yeah. And then now I have a whole apartment full of shit, and I'm just like, where did it all come from? And, and there's actually you've got to actually like make money and get like good like, yeah, to maintain yeah. the lifestyle yeah. yeah yeah so um yeah doing doing that taught me um that i loved to protect i loved to be of service to others and so when we got back i got offered a trip to iraq and um then four days before i left they canned it they, they canceled yeah. the trip and so i got really kind of uh, just focused and unmotivated and decided to look elsewhere mm. and uh, look for a new career. And is that where you moved over the Naval Special Operations side? It, it wasn't. It's not actually um, uh, uh, Spec Ops. It's okay. it's still just the Navy. Okay. Uh, it's about as good as you It's the, the, the top of the elite of the Navy, but it's still not under SOCOM or anything like that. Gotcha. Um, the only people we have that are Special Forces in Australia are um, the SAS, the Commandos, and I believe IRR. Um, they are what is it? What are they? They man, I can't even think of immediate that. response regiment. Okay, I, I I believe they come under SOCOM as well. I don't. They've probably changed their name by now. Like everything's changing in the military back home. Yeah. Um, so clearance divers definitely not special forces. Uh, I think we should be because special forces would know how to utilize us better as opposed to the navy. Right. Um, and it felt like special forces. We were doing so much stuff. You know, we're doing where 
doing attack swimming and reconnaissance on the O2 rebreathers in the middle of the night. We're training to do mine countermeasures, jumping in the ocean, strapping mines with PE and then dra- and dragging them ashore and disassembling them. We're doing uh, underwater battle damage repair. We're, you know, hard hat diving with the chainsaws, with the, the Broco guns, all that stuff. Then we're doing land-based EOD as well. Um, so it was such a multifaceted role. I really do think we would have been better utilized under SOCOM, but whatever. We weren't. Right. I still loved my job. It was, you know, passing that 10-day selection and becoming a, a clearance diver was one of the best things I've ever done. That's amazing. That's awesome. So with how far were you into career when uh, Jaws came up in the bay and got you? <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, <clears throat> so I changed over from the Army uh, April 2005. I got attacked uh, alongside the Navy base in Sydney Harbour, February 11th, 2009. Jeez. Yeah. yeah so, you know, four years-ish. <clears throat> but uh, that was a shitty day at work. <laughs> I got I to say, man. You know, you know, one thing that blew me away when we first met, I think it was like four o'clock in the morning in a gold gym in Venice. <laughs> <laughs> I was exhausted from the night before. I'd done a project uh, the night before on Jacqueline Carzosa, um, actually, and I was out till like... One, so I think I got like an hour and a half of sleep by the time I got to you. No, no, don't apologize because it was my first Australian to cover and I was super excited. Yeah, I got to train early because um, something weird happened when I I got prosthetics and now I sweat so much. I just, my body overheats like crazy. So, and now, especially when summer's here, I've got to be in there before the sun. Otherwise, I just die. So, you're saying you're not moving to Texas? I'm I'm not not, (laughs) moving. No, there's no Texas, there's no Arizona, there's no Nevada, none of that. Even LA in summer is a push for me. Like I should move to Canada, (laughs) Alaska, and I could train to my full potential here. Like I just, I can't do it. Right. Uh, In winter here when it's cold here, even the first part of summer was pretty good. The first half a day here was overcast uh, before the sun came out with that June gloom the whole summer. Right. And so it was awesome. I could get in the gym, I could really train hard, but... When you're just so hot internally and you're wet and soaking and your limbs are literally falling off, uh, I just can't do it. And you know, I see I see my results suffer as a, a factor of that. But so I just get up before the sun. Yeah. So what I was going to say was when I met you at the gym, I was just um, drawn to the fact that you had this comfort level with the injuries. I realized it had been a while, but you know, you're very quick to joke about it and very quick to you know kind of self-disparage you know which is common in the military like you know we we kind of tear ourselves down as a joke you know sometimes or joke about ourselves or injuries you know but you were so comfortable with it and it was immediately like I could see even in the gym in your workout like there was that focus there was that drive and it was like man these injuries are not going to stop me like I'm going to continue mission continue on with my life attack it as you know, with the greatest strength possible, greatest vigor, and going to proceed in my career in whatever facet it needs to look like. What gave you that drive? Like, you know, because that injury... Too much time of not feeling like that. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, Tell me about that. <clears throat> definitely did not come easy, and it didn't come quickly. Um, I, I used to be so very embarrassed of myself because, obviously, a lot of us come from careers where we are who we are because we can do anything that is asked of us right run run that marathon okay no training run that marathon okay swim across sydney harbour okay or 
you know, pack march, hump up that mountain. Okay, whatever you need. So to be able to take him back so far whereby you can barely walk, you know, and you can't, I can't operate a weapon system efficiently because I've only got one hand and you just feel like you've lost so much of yourself. Uh, and I really hated that. I hated feeling like that. I hated being embarrassed. I hated being self-conscious. Um, and I lived at Bondi Beach, which is one of the tourist meccas of the world. So mm. I stopped going outside a lot because I got tired of people staring at me and I just would look at the ground. Um, and so I realized that that was no way to live. Um, I moved away from Bondi for a while to a, a bit of a quieter town just so I could get, try and build that confidence back up and repair myself to the point where I could walk well and I, I didn't look like I was recovering and I, you know, I put my weight back on and I realized that you know, I can't control the people staring at me. And to be honest, I, I understand because if I saw someone with two robot limbs walking down the street, I'd be curious and I'd look too. I wouldn't be a, a dick like a lot of people are and <laughs> just open mouth stare. You know, but I would be curious. And, yeah, well, I had one guy what? come up to me in Whole Foods the other day and stare me in the face and just say, what happened to your hand? So I said, what happened to your fucking manners? <laughs> Good response. Yeah, so Good response. it took a while to come, um, but I rebuilt myself uh, as strong as I possibly, possibly could. I got in the gym and I relearned how to use my body and I relearned how to use the tools at my disposal. And that was kind of the thing that helped me. I figured if they're going to stare at me, I, I, I'm, I just don't want them to look at me and say, oh, check out that poor guy with his missing limbs. Oh, I feel so bad for him. I would hold myself high. I've got all black prosthetics because you can't. You can tell the difference in skin tone. You can tell I've got a prosthetic leg. So fuck it. I'm gonna get the badassest looking prosthetics you can get, and I'm gonna walk around with my shoulders back, my head high, so they they look at me and go, "Holy shit! Look at that freaking cyborg walking down the street." <laughs> That's what I think when I see you. So, yeah, man. You know, uh, um. and and confidence, confidence and happiness are two extremely attractive qualities in other people, and. I, w I was really worried that I would be not looked on um, by the opposite sex uh, as an attractive person anymore. And so I realized that I've just got to own it. And that's where that came from. It just comes from making a choice. Okay? Opposite sex comes up from an Australian. Imagine that. <laughs> I feel like that would be the first thought from an Australian guy. Well, just, just lost my leg. Yeah, it, it does. Like, like it me. just plays on your mind. You think, oh man, I'm, like I'm you're having visions of wheelchairs and pity and people staring and girls never wanting to be with you. And you know, it's something we all want. We all want to be loved and we all want to course, feel yeah. affection and feel like we're attractive. Um, and so... I realized that I couldn't control what I look like physically, externally, but I can be happy. I can train myself to look happy and have an air of confidence. And at least I'll have that. Um, and in the early days, I kind of overcompensated with that sometimes to the point where it almost, or maybe it did come off as arrogance, Yeah. but it was just overcompensating. And I really didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I was just very insecure in myself. But how did you get there? Like, I mean, obviously that took some time, you know. So, so can we backtrack a little bit to the, you know, the injury, just the story? I know you've told it five and a half million, probably billion times by now. <laughs> but it's important for people to gain a little context for those of that haven't heard. And anybody else, 
you can read on the vetsproject.com all together <laughs> story. So, um, you know, but for me, one of the things I was going to trace back to was that gym time was I noticed that confidence and even photographing you um, in those, you know, beautiful black and whites. Don't want to sound cocky, but. Dude, that are <laughs> really good photos. And Thank I you, hate photos of myself, but they're, they're, you did a good job. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate it. But those photos for me were like so striking and not because of the wounds or the injuries, but just the confidence through that. I could see it in your, you know, even on the cliffs when we were in Santa Monica and we're on the edge there and you're flying the drone and all those shots. And, you know, I took that one shot to Sundance with me and people just stood back at it and were like, Oh my God, dude, that's sick. Where's this dude from? And like Australia. And he's like, of course he's from Australia. You know, like there's that image though of you and like that kind of, you know cyborg connection you've got the drone and then you know you look like you're half there you know you've got the machine parts it's just the terminator look the drone's just extended out of my robot hand yeah exactly <laughs> there's that connection there and um it's just a kind of a cool um, shot that i really have grown to love but that confidence um where did that you know go back to that dark day you know of, of that attack in the bay it's all it's then? all acquired man and, and it's yeah. stuff you learn like a lot of people say you can't learn leadership you can't learn confidence you, certain things you can't learn that's all bullshit you know, they're just very small-minded people you can learn anything you want you as long as you practice hard enough or all the way down to your own emotions you can reinforce your own happiness and positivity and motivation just by practicing it because it's no different to a physical movement and so i had to do that out of necessity otherwise i was looking down the barrel of having a very shitty life and no one wants that no like it came down to it really came down to a simple choice you know what do i want do i want a good life or do i want a shit life yeah. okay i don't want a shit life no one wants that so <laughs> how do i how do i achieve this good life you know what do i what do i do um i, I you know i was in hospital bed my whole hamstring's been bitten off by a shark. My hand's been bitten off by a shark. I've just had the remainder of my leg chopped off. My calf has been embedded into the back of my leg where the hamstring was bitten out of. I can't get out of my bed to go to the toilet by myself. I can, all I can do is sit up. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, well, what, what made me so happy and positive and motivated all through my military career? And I thought, well, the first thing I did when I got to work every single day was PT. Mm. And I thought, well, that was a good routine. You get up, do PT. You know, you've, you've accomplished something. And so I thought, well, I can't do much. And I looked up above my bed and there was a, a handle there to help me sit up. And so I thought, well, I can pull myself up on that. And so with my one hand, with my, like, my drainage tubes and my ketamine bulb and my morphine drip, and Oof. I started pulling myself up two days after I had my leg chopped off doing one-armed semi-chin-ups. Uh, and so that was the beginning. As soon as I realized I could do that, I, I was, and I hadn't, you have nothing but time laying in that fucking hospital bed. So I'm looking around going, what else can I do? And I got my buddies to bring in TheraBands so I could tie them to the bars around the bed and I could, I learned I could do, you know, chest flies and I could do tricep extensions and things like that. And eventually I could get out of my bed and they brought me in some dumbbells and protein powders. And so I just slowly inch by inch by day, progressed into i'm out of hospital i've got a prosthetic leg get me into the gym i had i I didn't have to do anything i had no responsibilities except to get better because i wanted to go back to work it's all i wanted to do all i I could not imagine losing my career because that i felt made me who i was because i was literally was not qualified to do anything else 
uh, I'd be the most overqualified barman on the planet. So I needed that job back. And I was very lucky, the Chief of Navy, it was such a high profile incident that happened. It was it went in the media all around the world. It's on YouTube, right? Like yeah, the shark attack. attacks on yeah. YouTube. Yeah, you can watch me getting eaten live. <laughs> um, I've watched it 10 times, actually. <laughs> yeah, I usually, I travel and I speak a lot and I, I show that and I show a lot it's of wild, these surgery man. photos as well because yeah. the doctor, my surgeon was really awesome. He took photos of not just me when I came into the emergency and what my hand looked like, like a bowl of Japanese noodles but, and the shark bite, but also the surgery to have my leg removed. And so I show those a lot when I travel and speak. Um, and it's not about that. Like when I speak, it's not about military. It's not really about the shark attack or anything like that. It's about life. It's like, it's like what we're talking about now. It's right. like overcoming adversity and embracing change and how the military mindset and leadership and all that sort of stuff that we learn um, can be utilized in the real world in, in, by companies and in your own personal life to make everything easier. But I do like to show the surgery photos. <laughs> I've had 58 people pass out. 58? 58. So I did a launch oh for Microsoft gosh. 10 a couple of years ago. Was back. that all six, at one show? Or? You know, six people in one go is the most I've ever had. But I'm just picturing that, like that Benny Hinn, like that pastor, you know, like putting his hands on people and then like passing out like a street fighter. Yeah. I've music. had to jump off stage and yeah. do first aid quite a few times. Oh my gosh. 55 men. Wow. Only three women. Wow. Yeah. So the women handle it better than the yeah, men. Yeah, women are way tougher when they see that stuff. Wow. The women are like, we've been through pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sh- shark attack, whatever. That's a Tuesday. <laughs> wow, man. So what were you saying about Microsoft, though? You said you had something like that. Six people in Six one go. Six people yeah. in one go. Even the guy at the AV control panel passed out. He's <laughs> drooling into the electronics. It was, they said it was the best Your conference they'd ever had. <laughs> best conference. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't so, hear you for half of it because the yeah, electronics we were all doing all first aid. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But yeah. So it was. It was really about though, that slow progression, just setting very small achievable goals to achieve an impossible dream. I mean, to get how, back to work. How would you tell you know somebody that's going through that and kind of experiencing that? Obviously, it's not going to be a shark attack for everyone or most people. Um, that's a little rare. I mean, that was the first time in like 50 years, right? In that bay. Yeah, that, yeah. That it but it's like, it's 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 no bigger or better or special than what anyone else is going through. Right. We, we all go through shit. We all yeah. go through struggles and you know, postnatal depression and PTSD and all like all manner of things happens to us humans. We're so fucking delicate. We are delicate. Um, yes. So this shark tank, it's nothing special. It's just we all can utilize the same tools to overcome the struggles that we go through and then we don't have to be a victim to them. We can actually be a survivor of them and reinforce how much stronger we are that we've survived what we've just been through and carry that into what we're going to do next. That's a great point. And it's a progressional path. I mean, you know, one in which you found yourself at a, you know, the bottom of the barrel, a very dark place in your hospital bed, you know, having only that bar to really do pull-ups on. Um, but you still found a way to get up on the bar. Yeah. <laughs> Even in that moment, like there's like that, that little striking moment, right? Where you're like, well, can't get much worse than this. Yeah. So I can't feel anything. I just had anything. a morphine shot. <laughs> yeah. So let's see how many I can do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so there's that moment of realization like, okay, I've got a, I, I have a little bit here that I can do and we can work from there. Let's take it day by day. And so when you process and you proceed from there, you know, as you, you know, take that path, what, so like because you're getting out right you had to eventually get out and then you basically find out oh cool i can be a mall cop 
Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, it was really distressing to think that I wouldn't be able to do anything. I what did they tell you? Like, what was the process? It, it was actually not too bad. Like I was saying earlier, because it was so widely publicized, there was media all over Australia about it. And the chief of Navy came out and said, as long as Paul wants a job in the Navy, he'll have one. So okay. the pressure was off a little bit, but I also knew that I would never be happy being pushed under a desk. Like I, he didn't know it, but I wanted my old job back. So that was the goal. And so to do that, I needed to prove to everyone that I could operate just as easily just as efficiently as everyone else so all i had to do was train three times harder than i ever have in my life (laughs) with one leg and one hand right so that's what i did so i got out of hospital after nine weeks and had nothing but time at home uh i had my best friend gave up his job in a a restaurant up north and he came down and moved in with me and became my full-time carer Um, wow and he was, I didn't know. I didn't remember that part, man. Yeah, my, my wow. best friend Brock. I grew up with him. We were best friends since we were ten years old, uh, and he gave up a lot to come down and live with me. But at the same time, we all we also supported each other. So he he he's a cook, a chef. So he cooked all the time. I got him into the gym every single day. Well, he drove, but he wouldn't have done it without me. He wasn't training, um, and right. he's his was a legitimate athlete. He was going to be in the Olympics for running, and then he. Um, a car rolled over on his arm and just took him out of contention for the sports. Uh, and so we kind of supported each other emotionally and mentally through a period where uh, I needed a, a lot of not, I didn't need a lot of emotional support because I already had my purpose. I knew what I needed to do, uh, but I needed a lot of physical support because I was still on one leg for a lot of the time. Uh, I only had one hand. So, you know, and things from him helping me tie up my shoelaces and feeling very pathetic when he had to do it, but very appreciative of the fact that I had him there. Right. Uh, it meant so much and my recovery would not have been anywhere near as easy and um, fluid if I didn't have someone like that. that. That little bit of support that we have or the lot of support from our friends, from a family, from anyone that can be there to help us and... Uh, that just, it means so much. Okay? The, the, sometimes it's the smallest thing. Sometimes it's just a comment. Sometimes it's just an, like you remember the smallest things that gave you inspiration. Just one sentence sometimes. I'm, one of my other best friends, Steve, said to me, I was going through a, a pretty dark day and he's like, dude, don't feel bad about feeling bad. You know, that's so normal. Just don't, don't let it ruin your day, your week or your whole life. Work out why you feel bad. And then try and and do something to repair that because you don't have to be a victim to that either. Like you get to choose, you get to decide. So don't sit back and just accept that shit. Like that's not who we are. You don't have to accept shitty circumstances. Make an effort to change it. Right. Man, that's kind of a, that's very simple yet. um, Everything should be simple. Profound statement. It should be simple. It's not like I'm not a complicated person. I'm not a overly clever or smart person i like things to be simple so i think that made it actually easier yeah wow so you know and i think something important that you really said there was you know we that support system right having that guy brock having family there was very important right and you know i've seen it time and time again in this veteran community i have so you know we have so many guys that are lost and kind of sitting back on the couch and not doing anything with their lives, not moving forward, you know, kind of stuck in that frame of, well, I just spent the best years of my life. That was it. I'm done. It's the military. It's not such bullshit. Man, I, you know, I'm stuck in that. I see guys even who are successful right now 
who are still stuck back on the battlefield. You know, like they're there. They want that back. There's nothing wrong with that at right. all. Like right. just don't let it be the anchor of your whole life. Don't, right. Like if you spend all your time looking backwards, you're never going to move forwards. Yeah. And I mean, somebody, you know, you who kind of had that shock to the system. I mean, you got out in forced circumstances. You didn't want out at the time. You know, it was the position that you were kind of put in. It was, right. I, I could have stayed in. Okay. I, 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 in my mind, it wasn't really an option. I stayed in for an, another three and a half years um, as an instructor, but I was teaching these young clearance diver candidates to do something that I loved without ever getting to do it myself. Right. And so it was almost torture. Yeah. And we were doing 70, 80 hour weeks. Um, and I never did, I never asked my trainees to do something that I couldn't or wouldn't do. And right. so if they're fucking up during the day and they're accumulating these 50 push-ups at a time and we get to the end of the day, it's you know, 11.30 at night and we've got to do 1,500 push-ups, then I'm doing 1,500 push-ups with them. Oof. And so we get to bed at two and then I got to be back at work at six. <laughs> and I'm doing that on, on prosthetic leg. And it, they, they reckon that, the scientists reckon that we burn 80% more energy just by Jeez. walking on a prosthetic leg. So wow. I'm dying. I'm killing myself and I'm getting angrier and angrier. My relationship broke down. I was drinking more, um, not like just on the weekends, just for release. Right. But... It, it wasn't a healthy environment towards the end there. Um, I didn't enjoy it. Mm. I was just doing it because I didn't know what else to do. And I went to my boss one day. Well, actually, before that, I did a little bit of speaking. Um, the only thing I was more afraid of than sharks was public speaking. <laughs> and so I, I had companies ask me to speak and I was like, no, no, no way. I'm definitely not doing that. I actually quit an IT course when I was 19 because I had to do... Um, presentations in front of the class once. Wow! Now I got six months in. I was like, now nah, I got to speak. I don't, I don't want to speak. I just wanted to work on computers. So I quit. <laughs> That's how terrified of speaking I was. And so I said no. And then Canteen, a cancer camp for kids, asked me to speak. And I was like, well, shit. How do you say no to kids with cancer? Yeah. So and all right, you can't. Yeah. You can't. So I went along, and I felt pathetic that I was so afraid of these twenty sick children. <laughs> Fuck, I'm such an idiot. And then. <laughs> I did it and I came out literally on top of the world. I felt incredible. Mm. And I thought, wow, that was very, very powerful to help those kids forget that they were sick just for 30 minutes, just to make them laugh and tell them a story and tell them some cool military worries and shit like that. And I thought, oh, maybe I can do this. And I, I went to my old school and did 1,200 kids. And that, that was it. I was sold. I'm like, I can do this. And and I started getting paid, but the Navy made me use my leave to go and do these jobs. Mm. So, you know, three years down the track, I have no more leave left. I'm making my two weeks Navy wage in one hour. And so I went to my boss and I said, look, what is the chance of me getting posted back to the teams? And he said, well, you, to go to the teams, you have to be deployable for, and you're not deployable for, under, and under this current commandership, you're not going to get out of here. And so that was kind of the decision made. And mm. I was terrified. I was so scared of losing my security blanket, that guaranteed paycheck. And even though I was making some good money speaking, I was just thinking, well, how long am I going to be the flavor of the month? You know, how long mm. can I tell this same stupid story for until people are like, yeah, whatever, get over it. You just 
10 years down the track, you're living off the same old stories. I didn't want to be that guy. Right. 10 years down the track, I'm still living off. <laughs> <laughs> you're still telling it. Yeah. But, but I've learned to... Um, in the US too. Yeah. yeah. But, but I've learned to tell the story in a, in a way that it's not about the shark attack story. It's about life. And so um, I left the Navy uh, around about August 2012 okay. and became a full-time speaker and just killed it. Yeah. Just my god i was working a tenth of the time making three times as much money having so much time to do anything else i wanted to to focus on i'd done so much tv i got comfortable in front of the camera because i was always doing media interviews um then whenever there was a shark attack in australia the media would come to me for a comment so i had a necessity of not sounding like a dumbass on television <laughs> and being able to give uh, an informed opinion about sharks and shark attacks i had to learn about them right and so i built up a knowledge base by watching shark week and documentaries and th- reading books and so all of a sudden discovery channel came along wow yeah and that opened up a whole new realm for me I mean, what's that moment like, you know, when you're, when they kind of tracked you down and found you? Because you've been watching Shark Week. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not when I was a kid. I think I caught some documentaries, um, but because we were quite poor, we didn't, we couldn't afford cable. Right. Well, actually we didn't, there wasn't even a cable when I was a young kid. So I'd got to watch it. We had like three TV channels when I was a kid. So it, it, they must've popped up on television on usually on ABC or something like that. So I I knew about them. I knew about all these shark adventurers, Ron and Valerie Taylor and Jacques Cousteau and all these incredible people. And I'm like, Oh man, I would love to walk in the footsteps of my heroes here. Uh, And so to be able to have the opportunity to do that and tell my story at the same time and overcome this fear of sharks that I had all in one go was incredibly empowering to think that I'm transitioning into a whole nother career by facing a fear. And that was the, the funny thing I learned about fear. It can hold you back or it can be also a powerful motivator. Mm. empowering in the moment for you too in order to get into tv i mean that's tough that's a tough transition right like you're in the as a veteran you you know you had been a performer before you know you had performed obviously as a you know white rapper growing up in (laughs) but you had some anonymity in that as well though yeah because all you got to do is just this rehearsed rap and in three minutes it's over and then you go and do something else but yeah yeah i I, I still don't feel 100% comfortable in front of the camera. Really? I think I put on a, a great fur card. Is that how you say it? Fur card? Facade? Facade. Facade. facade um, yeah. I put on a great facade because that's my job to inform people about sharks and talk about what I'm doing and the emotions behind it. Uh, and I don't mind that so much. It's just having the camera in front of your face. It feels awkward. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's it, it's the, the the price I have to pay to be living this incredible life where I get paid to travel the world and have adventures. Right, you're stepping and, out of your comfort zone. Dude, that's exactly what we joined the military for. Yeah, 
you know? So I get to do that all over again. I get a great little home movie out of it that goes on Discovery Channel. <laughs> home can, movie. I can watch my, my documentaries again. I can learn from all the incredible people I'm working with. Like, I work with this guy called Andy, Andy Brandy Casagrande IV. His, his dad was <laughs> a jokester. Yeah. Uh, awesome dude out of Florida. Um, one of the world's, if not the world's best shark cinematographer slash underwater cinematographers. Uh, marine biology student. He is so knowledgeable. Uh, Joe Romero, another incredible cameraman in shark conservation. I, and the scientists, I get to work with these guys and learn from them and follow them into the water. They literally taught me how to swim with great white sharks without a cage. Wow. One of the best experiences I've ever had. What's that like? It's very... <laughs> <laughs> nerve wrecking is not terrifying. strong enough <laughs> it's like it's like just giving yourself over to the training you've had absolutely putting it's like the military it's putting your hands into you're putting your life into the hands and knowledge that you've been given by the people smarter than you and more knowledgeable than you more capable so that's what i did jumped out of this cage with andy 110 feet down. Oh my God. Seven, we counted seven different great white sharks on the way down. Um, there was four of them swimming around us at the time. And I moved 30 feet away from the cave for cage for about 10, 15 minutes. Hung out, had a great white shark, 14 foot male great white shark swimming at my face. And I had a GoPro on a stick. Oh, wow. So <laughs> you, you just have to go, well, this is, this is what it's come to. It can kill me if it wants to. It can bite me in half this thing is so big it could destroy me and wouldn't even blink an eyelid and that would be it and i'd just be a footnote or i could just enjoy it in the moment slow down my heart rate face it like another predator and it just swam around me wow yeah it was really freaking incredible you're like as long as there aren't any bull sharks down here we're good <laughs> <laughs> well bef before the great that, are fine. Man, before that i learned to hand feed bull sharks oh, in fiji geez, i wow. taught i got to teach ronda rousey how to hand feed bull sharks wow i got to teach will smith how to dive with tiger sharks for his facebook show i saw that yeah he's how, a good good guy was it was that fun Being yeah really show? really um yeah. i didn't tell him until afterwards that i never dived with tiger sharks before <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good strategy yeah, hell yeah man. it's a good strategy you can't tell him fake that. it till you make it yeah <laughs> <laughs> my dad said until will smith dies <laughs> just dead in the water yeah. we were doing the, the pre-dive interview and i'm like dude is this really something you want to do like yeah. this is legitimately dangerous you could die do you you will smith do you want to risk it and he's just like no <laughs> so we did it and then he lived yeah, I mean, that's good. And you're like, okay, you can resume making $100 million a day now. Yeah, right, yeah. I'll <laughs> go back to swimming with sharks. Yeah, gosh, man, that's wild. I mean, what you know? What was it that really made you, was it just facing your fears? Was it that made you want to get back in there with the sharks? I mean, because obviously most people have that happen, and it's probably like the furthest thing from their minds. Like, let's get back in the water and hang out with this thing that just almost took me out. It, it, a lot of factors came into it. One was... I think we, whenever we find a career or a hobby or a pastime or whatever it is that we really enjoy, we want to be the best we can at it. Mm. And so I had to become a, a really great TV presenter and I, I don't know if I'm there. I'm always striving to be, uh, but that involved diving with sharks. <laughs> and the more time I spent with them, the more I realized how little I had to fear. Um, and I learned about the plight of sharks and how much 
just destruction they have to deal with like how many tens of millions of them are killed a year for no good reason whatsoever uh, and they're so vitally important to the oceans my military ideology transferred over to protecting the oceans and protecting the sharks to stand up for something that can't stand up for itself to speak up for an animal that can't speak up for itself that ha- is absolutely misunderstood uh, and that in turn gave me some more value some more purpose uh, and I love it I, dude I honestly I love it if I'm not diving on wrecks sharks or bombs I don't even go in the water anymore wow there's no point like I just it's so much fun to share that with everyone as well yeah um, break down misconceptions and and show people that yes they are dangerous they're thoroughly dangerous I took Al Roca diving in the um, the Bahamas not long ago and it bit me on the hand the shark bit me on the hand when, really? I, when I was wow. feeding it it was the first time I'd ever worn chain mail and I got bitten and it gave me a moment of pause to go well Paul <laughs> Maybe you've been pushing the boundaries a little bit too much. <laughs> you need to pull back and rethink this and re- maybe mitigate some risks a little smarter. So You get comfortable on that edge though, right? Yeah. To where it can almost get dangerous, uh, right? Absolutely. And so I'm, I'm actually grateful that that happened. It didn't even break the skin. It, it grabbed my chain mail. So. Okay. But definitely taught me a valuable lesson. Uh, and so now I'm getting to incorporate other aspects of military training uh, into this as well, mm. whereby we just shot a show called Shark Wrecked 2 where we uh, simulated, semi-recreated what some of the downed World War II pilots faced when they got shot down by the Japanese in the South Pacific, whereby wow. obviously we didn't get shot down and there was no Japanese waiting to torture us. That's good. But what we did, yes, oh, that's always great. <laughs> yeah. um, so we... we parachuted me and james glancier a british special forces guy from the sbs we parachuted out of a notionally crashing plane from fifteen thousand feet directly into the south pacific uh to survive for two days and two nights with no food or water while uh sharks were around and then we had to make it to shore somehow while the current was taking it it took us five miles out to sea at one point um, so now, now I get to incorporate some of those incredible lessons that I've learned in the military into this realm that I'm in now. And it's just worlds are colliding. My life keeps getting better and better. My job is more and more fulfilling every year. Mm. So to share that, to share the passion, to share the excitement, to share the knowledge, uh, gives me a, a great sense of achievement and purpose. And that's what gets us up out of bed every day. Right. Right. Man, absolutely. Man, lives yeah. are busy. Yes, sir. That's it. I mean, you've got to continue on in that purpose. And I, you know, I've had this talk with so many different veterans I've covered throughout the years now, four or five years, but you know, it is that sense of purpose that gets you out of bed. And that's the hard thing is like when you're in the military, that's kind of, you know, purposed out for you. Like it's laid out. You have that structure. You know exactly what you're going to do every day. And hitting you those, don't have a choice. Yeah, you don't have a choice. I mean, you've got to have purpose. When, and that's what you got to do for yourself sometimes. you got to take the choice out of it. Right. You know, so I always talk about how choice is so important to us. You know, we get to choose how we're going to feel mostly, um, what we're going to do. But sometimes take the choice out of it. Make a set of rules for yourself that force you into creating the life. You know, I, I get up at, I go to bed at nine because I know I want to get up at five and go train. So that's, I, I don't always achieve that. It's not about perfection. It's about mm. progression. So I always try and try and try and sometimes I fuck up and sometimes I fail. We all do. Like, right. you don't have to beat yourself up about it. Um, just just keep trying. 
That's awesome. And what a message too. And you know, one thing that you talked about is like your life is, you know, progressionally getting better. Now you're doing some awesome things with shark week. Obviously you're on freaking hanging out with Will, you know, Will freaking Smith in the middle of the ocean with tiger sharks. I mean, that's a dream, you know, that you're achieving some of those dreams and probably things that you didn't originally set out to do, but now through this, you're getting to do those things. You know, do you, do you have dark moments now? Like, are there moments now, even in your success, where you still have those struggles and you still have those setbacks? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's not always sunny days, even in California. Um, I I worry sometimes a lot about the future of my career. The um, not having, uh, I don't know. I guess any real security. Mm. Um, I've I've got my I can get my pension in Australia it's different to America we don't get our pension if we're working so I don't get that at the moment but if I stop working like it's weird you, like you can't even have a house or something you've got to be like dirt ass broke and then the government will give you money mm. so my fallback plan is always have a fallback plan even if always. it's always if, it, if, if even if it's not to have a plan. At least it's a plan. Like so, my fallback like plan that. is basically another T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we need to start up our. We need to start a T-shirt company, yeah. man. What are we doing? The, the veteran project line with some <laughs> hash, yeah. some of these great lines. Yeah. Um, fallback plan is just move to a little third world country and live off my pension and just do good. Yeah. Um, do whatever, maybe Bali or something like that, and just help out the local communities. That's the fallback plan. Okay. Um, I'd actually still like to do that, not being broke on my pension, but at the moment, uh, living like in a LA. nice house in Bali. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I do worry sometimes, um, you know, when Discovery Channel's not calling for six months, and I'm like, fuck, what's going on? We got a show. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, I've, I'm in meeting after meeting after meeting with production companies, and everyone tells you, oh, we love you, you're the best, you're amazing, we want to work together, then you never hear from them again, and you're just like, oh, shit, they're just, they're lying to me. It's all bullshit. <laughs> Oh God! You stress. Uh, and the speaking jobs—that's the world of being an artist, though, isn't it? Yeah, like, so it is. many turndowns, man. Where you think like it's gonna—it's happened so many times with the Veterans Project. Potential sponsor comes along. They're talking. They're talking. They're talking. They're talking, and then all of a sudden, just gone. And you're like, wait, what? I thought you really wanted to do this. Like yeah. you were so stoked about what I'm doing, and uh -huh. you're gone now. Yeah, but you can't let it get you down. Right. You just—it's a lot of the times it's a numbers game. Uh, at maybe it's, it's and it's time it's the, bit, the right time the amount of time you put into it and always going into it with that sense of confidence and, and self positivity and happiness um, eventually people are drawn to that yeah. like people are always drawn to happy people that's true so be the I always say be the light you want to see in someone else mm, so, and, then, and then you get to share it yeah you know then there's two of you that are happy and then it just starts to multiply um so yeah, there's dark times. I get worried. I get I get a little upset. Um, I do know my triggers though, and I think that's important. Mm -hmm. um, drinking, like being hungover and depressed the next day. Like I, I'm 42 now, so I can't do that anymore. And right. you know, to be honest, I don't want to do that that much anymore. I'd rather focus on things that are going to accomplish for you know progression in my in my life and my career. Um, so I just don't do it as much. I, I make that choice. So I minimize. I work towards my strengths. I. I know the triggers that make me sad. I know the triggers that make me happy. I know that training and talking to corporations and kids and all that stuff 
makes me happy, gives me fulfillment. So I focus on those things. I pour my energy into the people around me that are amazing. Uh, and that just sets me up for future happiness. And that that's the main thing, man. That's all what we all want out of life. Like whether you you got money, you don't have money, or you've got a career that you love, or you don't. We all want happiness. And if you're happy, then everything else gets easier. Mm-hmm. So that's the goal. That's awesome. You were kind of talking about something a little earlier that I wanted to get back to really quickly. You were talking about, you know, kind of a little bit of the conservation work and how, you know, there are so many misconceptions with working with sharks. What's been the biggest, you know, obviously there are a ton, but what's been the biggest misconceptions with sharks that you've really seen that you've really had to educate people on? I don't think there's as many as there used to be. I think people watching Shark Week um, or even just on social media and stuff, they understand that sharks, most people understand that sharks are not these lurking monsters waiting to eat your children. They're just (laughs) sharks doing sharky shit. They live in the fucking ocean. That's where they live. Stop fucking with them. Stop killing them. Um, They're not good to eat. Like they're bad for you. Um, People say like, well, you know, I don't eat much of it. And I'm like, well getting hit on the head with a hammer just a little bit better for you than <laughs> not getting hit on the head with a hammer. Um, they're full of mercury. They've got this thing called bioaccumulation whereby the, the bigger fish eat the smaller fish constantly and so they build up all these toxic metals inside their wow. body uh, and they can't release them. Okay. So you're eating all that mercury, eating the arsenic, you're eating the pollution that's in the ocean uh, and you're decimating the ecosystem at the same time so it got to a point where i just stopped like i could not be a part of it anymore i stopped eating uh, all seafood mm. uh, then i stopped eating all land-based animals because of the runoff effect from animal agriculture right. uh, it's one of the world's biggest polluters all of the the the, the greatest destruction of land is the clearing for animal agriculture mm. uh, and we saw that just now with the burning of the amazon that was a direct correlation of it being plowed for animal agriculture. Most of the water goes to grow the f- crops to feed these animals. So we could f- we could literally feed the planet if we stopped giving that food to the animals. Wow. So just stopped eating all animals. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. I mean, you're a vegetarian now, right? I'm worse, bro. I'm that, that special V word. Oh, the- no. Vegan? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. All right, the podcast is over. Bye, yeah, Paul. Bye. <laughs> but Paul, dude, Paul I, has been trying. As soon as I walked in the door, he closed the door behind me and he said, you're stuck now. Yeah, it's locked, bro. You're, not going it's you're only eating vegetables. Drink my broccoli shake. <laughs> What's, I mean, so there is that kind of stigma, obviously, with vegans, you know, where it's like, hey, you're going to choke you up against the corner. And Look, like, we got through nearly an hour and I didn't bring it up. I know, I think that's, that's quite pretty good, man. Yeah. But what is it about, you know, you talked about what kind of led you down that path you know is that something that you're going to continue on you know you think for the rest of your life is that really yeah man i love it yeah dude it's so good um the one thing that the one thing that that really forced the change was i shot a documentary in africa with a friend of mine damien mander who runs the international anti-poaching foundation and he's in the new movie coming out september 16th the game changes uh really eye-opening documentary uh, we went to the premiere last night. I would encourage everyone to watch it, especially athletes. It's going to be so eye-opening. Okay. Um, and I can back it up, dude. I, I used to eat all the chicken breasts in the world because I thought that's what you had to do to get your protein and your lean muscle mass. I never actually achieved that. Um, yeah. And I'm actually 
probably bigger and stronger than I've ever been now at 42. And I've, I've been plant-based for three and a half years. And wow. my biggest misconception was I was going to turn into this little piece of spaghetti. Uh, but it just didn't happen. What happened was uh, I didn't necessarily get... Like you hear all these things. Oh, I got so much energy and better sleep. And I didn't get that. I have sleep apnea. So I wear a little mandibular advancement splint, a little mouth guard. It's really attractive when I go to bed. Um, helps me sleep better. Brings in all the ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got that lift going. Like you're in your retainer. Um, so I wear that. That helps me sleep a bit better. I don't want to go... I'm just... I'm fighting against going full Darth Vader mask. Um, <laughs> nah, dude, come know. on. You got to go all the way, bro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the sleep just got better through that, but my energy levels didn't you know, go through the roof. I was pretty high energy anyway. Um, but what I did notice was my inflammation went down. Really? I haven't had an injury that's taken me out of training since day one. Wow. And I used to get my elbows used to blow out, my tendon, tendonitis terribly, uh, my knees, my lower back, my shoulders, just for, through. That was from the meat? That was, well, it was through 12 years of the military. Oh. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> parachuting yeah. and climbing ropes and yeah. lugging dive point, sets around yeah. and all that shit. Right. But, but the science tells us that the meat and the dairy and the eggs, the, pro, the, um, the proteins, amino acids in those products have inflammatory effects. And the plant-based ones have anti-inflammatory effects. So that was the biggest thing for me. That um, I didn't get injured. Mm -hmm. I can train all the time. I don't get a sore. I never get sore enough to take me out of training anymore, ever. Wow. So I can train whenever I want. I can double up on chest days if I wanted. I wouldn't because I'm giving the muscles time to heal. But um, so I got bigger and stronger because I could consistently train more. And then the add-on effect was just, I, I just felt really good in my soul because mm. nothing was directly dying for me to live. It, I, I just came to the realization it was unnecessary right. for anything to die. And that was the biggest thing. Um, like I said, I went to Africa. I was working with Damien Manda and he's a massive dude. He's a legend in, in the Australian military. Mm -hmm. 12 tours of Iraq as a sniper. Like 12? 12. He did like a private military contracting, special oh forces sniper. One of the most badass people on the planet. Sounds like a veterans project. Yeah, that I dude. Yeah. And um, he's vegan. I was in Africa and he's eating from a separate pot. And I was like, why, wow. why don't you eat? I'm just thinking, oh, maybe he's got better quality food than the rangers. <laughs> he's like, dude, I don't, I don't eat animals because I was out here protecting the animals and eating the animals. And I felt like a hypocrite. Wow. And I was like, that, that made sense to me. And mm. I was like, well, I'm protecting the animals and I'm eating the animals and I fucking hate hypocrites. I mean, like, did it hit you right then? Was that when you knew you were going to go that way or... Was yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it was the key that turned. And I went home and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go vegan. And I did it and I failed in two days. <laughs> <laughs> At least you're honest. Yeah, no. I thought that was like a, the start of the success. No, right there. No. I, was, I was like, I didn't know what to fucking eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so I gave it up. Like I quit for about four months and then it just kept coming up in my world. Uh, yeah. And it, it made me realize that can you really be a true conservationist and protect animals if you're sponsoring the slaughter and, and torture of animals? Yeah. And I, I couldn't justify it. Right. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to do it again. I'll do it smart. And I just started cutting things out. First, I cut out kangaroo because I ate a lot of kangaroo. Um, really? Yeah. I just figured, like, you look at what a cow does. Yeah. Sits around the paddock doing fuck all eating grass and look what a kangaroo does it's built do you see some of these red kangaroos man they are 
jacked. They're jacked and I'm yeah. like, I'm going to eat that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm making... That will ch- get me jacked. Yeah, I'm eating chili kangaroo and spaghetti oh bola kangaroo. I didn't know people ate kangaroo. Yeah, man. Yeah. Wow. It's very gamey. Um, mm, but yeah. I, yeah, See, I that would kill that. me. So I just slowly can- canceled out certain things and added more things. And I, I ended up getting more nutrients because I was eating such a variety of vegetables and whole grains and things like that. Wow. Um, so it took a good few months. Uh, but then... Once I'd cut out the last vestige, eggs, and I, I had this whole realm of different foods. I was 22,000 different types of plants that you can eat as opposed to, what, like four different animals. So, you know, I, I didn't lose anything. I actually gained stuff. So, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to get on vegan propaganda. No, man. I, I mean, I wanted to hear it, and I think that's important. And, you know, especially within the context of the project is because... Everyone is so different, obviously. You know, you don't run into a ton of vegans in the military, but everybody, every individual, I mean, we had guys in our, you know, unit who were running from gangs, you know, from the gang life, you Uh know, Southeast Houston, or, you know, guys who were from Massachusetts who had, you know, or guys from Kentucky who had, you know, hardly ever even seen a black person. Like, there's so many different individuals coming from so many backgrounds. It is important to show that individual aspect of, you know, our service. So, you know, this for you is something that you're big in too yeah and so well, it's dude, i trained for many years to hunt and kill people and shoot them in the face yeah and so going out and hunting animals just I don't, there is I'm not something interested. about that though right like i i feel that man because honestly like i don't love hunting mm. i get it i know it. a lot of people do and i get it, like and i and i've got friends that love it and i don't fault them at all for it i just for me it's like it, it almost feels like um an angry action mm. because we were trained to do it in the army yeah. against an enemy. And it is for a defensive nation and your brotherhood and all that. But it is, I mean, killing is a serious matter. You yeah. know? So I was fortunate like, I never had to do that. Yeah. I want to get that out there. Like, right. I never Oh, had, I know, yeah. I never had to shoot some, at yeah. someone even. Right, yeah. Um, but I, that was my but the know, training, that's my what job you're was for. to hunt and kill people yeah, yeah. Um, legitimately. So, yeah, look, people love to hunt. They love the meat. They love not sponsoring the factory farming. And I think that's a great path to go down. Absolutely. Um, but it's not sustainable. Everyone right. can't do it. It's I, I kind of see it as it's a little bit selfish to be promoting that because okay. you're promoting a lifestyle that not everyone can live. Um, and if we all went out hunting, then we'd wipe out <laughs> everything. Um, and so, you know, I just don't want to be a part of it. I, I know we're not going to change everyone's mind but uh we are changing some people's mind and they're reaping the benefits of it and so is the world so i think it's worth um talking about and starting a dialogue about but without getting on your fucking high horse and preaching i mean fucking turn vegan you're killing the world you're torturing animals you're an asshole Uh, like there's no need for it to be like that people come around when they're ready right you just give them the information and let them do what they will with it that's awesome man that's great well, Paul, um, you know, one more question I really wanted to get to, you know, within the transition of your career and obviously you're having to learn all these different things about, you know, art and direction and being in front of a TV camera and getting used to public speaking, attacking some of your greatest fears. What, how do you want people to remember your legacy? Like, what, what, how do you want people to see Paul DeGelder? Like, what's the most important thing for you? I don't really care about that. No? no, no That's it awesome. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, it's not about me. Right. Mate, as long, you know what, something funny happens when you come as close to death as I have in the most horrific of painful of ways is that you realize there's nothing left to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on the brink of death. I accept I was underwater, drowning, being ripped apart by a shark, and I realized I was going to die. And so the biggest thing that came to my mind was 
am I ready to die? And I thought, well, shit, I've lived more lives than I could have possibly imagined in these 31 years. I have no regrets. If I'm going to die, then I'm good to go. And so all I want to do is make sure that I feel that same way when the next time comes. Mm. Because going to your deathbed with regrets is way more scary than actually dying. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's profound. And, and um, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Cheers, mate. Yeah. Cheers. Um, it's been awesome having you. And, you know, one of the things that we're uh, looking to do is, you know, constantly promote um veterans within this you know within this podcast as well so do you have anything out there that you're particularly looking forward to that's coming up um man i'm i'm following a whole bunch of really cool projects um you know we were talking about rudy earlier rudy's doing the force team blue uh, mm-hmm. i love following those guys and seeing what they're doing for the coral reefs and the oceans it's really awesome um and then there's vet poor there's uh, veterans for wildlife yeah, i love that. following yeah. all these guys that have transitioned and using their skills that they've learned to to for the betterment of the world. Um, these guys are amazing, support all of them. Um, they are working really hard and, and sacrificing a lot for this movement, for the world. Um, yeah, just, I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I find so much destruction has happened to our planet, our, our little home, that we need to start pulling up our socks and, and really trying to change the dynamic of what we've been doing to this planet. Uh, so that our kids, you know, it's not about us. Like it's right. about our kids, about the generations coming after. So let's try and be a little nicer, try and change some of the, the habits that we've been convinced over the years is the way that you're supposed to live um, through ignorance and uh, poor education and marketing campaigns that are telling us this is how you be a man and all that bullshit <laughs> like make up your own decisions get get the information that's out there we live in a really incredible world where we have the wealth of the world's knowledge and a few keystrokes on the internet mm-hmm. so there's no there's no excuse to be ignorant anymore like if you want to learn something about something look it up and learn it and then let your actions uh be dis- let let your your values be displayed in your actions yeah. instead of the other way around that's powerful well and i think one of the things you know that i kind of wanted to say and wrapping it up was the um as veterans you know we're taught within the context of what we do that you know we're living for a bigger purpose and we are we're living for the brotherhood um it's often you know in my experience is not about patriotism or necessarily about country but it was for me about the brotherhood and living being in that infantry unit and protecting you know your mates back having that guy's back in service. And then you get out, you know, trying to find that sense of purpose again. You found that. I mean, but it was tough. You didn't get there right away, but you found that sense of purpose. And Paul, that's inspirational. And, you know, the guys who can look to to you and see what you've done since, that can get a guy off of his couch. You know, yeah, get him to pull that gun out of his mouth. Yeah. It, you know? it might, yeah, and like you said, it might not happen straight away. Yeah. Like, but just keep, keep striving for that purpose. Yeah. Look, look for an avenue for you to live your best life because it's there. It's absolutely there. You just got to find your little niche and fit in with maybe one of these groups. Like, do, is, does it really sound that bad to move to Africa and patrol the wilderness and look after rhinos? It sounds like a badass life but you don't have to go all that far either like just yeah. just find your tribe again because i think that's one of the reasons people start to descend into depression and sadness and suicide is because like you said we lose the brotherhood and we we lose our little support network so make sure you find one find some purpose find some value just if you can't find it just keep looking keep working towards it you will will eventually fall into it 
It's like a relationship we were talking about earlier. Sometimes, it, the, the, most of the time, it pops up when you're not even looking for it. Or you're just happy and motivated and living your life and kicking on and doing good things, and all of a sudden, boom, you're falling into something incredible. Right, yeah. That's true, man. Um, well, again, thank you for being on the podcast, Paul, the Veterans Project podcast. You're one of the first on the show. Um, and it's really cool because, you know, I had that similar connection. I think the same person who brought you into my vision was the same person that brought Nate Boyer into my vision. And so it's cool cause I'm covering you two like back to back. So it's awesome, man. I'm, I'm, it's a privilege to have you on. Good to have a, an Aussie, a part of the show. So thanks for coming on, man. Cheers, bro. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.